Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate uh, to be able to come and to serve uh, this wonderful church here. Uh, we really love and appreciate this church and we love Pastor Ivor and his family and we are thankful for all the wonderful things this church has done, not only for Birchley Baptist Church, but also for the African Pastors uh, Conferences. Please turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Uh, earlier on, uh, Sean read one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Uh, we're reading another popular verse in the Bible this evening, uh, Romans 8 from verses 31 to 39. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things uh, to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we come now to a time where we will hear you speak. And we ask, Lord, that you might speak. But as you speak, Lord, give us a hearing of faith. Grant us their ears to hear, that we might apply your word to our lives. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to uh, uh, more devotion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the church. Help us to be conformed to the likeness and image of Christ. Fill us with your spirit, we ask. And help us, Lord, we pray. And as I preach, I pray that I lean not on my own understanding, but trust in the help that comes from the Holy Spirit. And I pray that both preacher and hearer are helped the body of Christ edified, and Jesus Christ and him alone glorified. Amen. Amen. Uh, when I uh, look at the audience this evening, I can tell so many of us are, are, are parents. Uh, so I'm sure as a parent, I'm sure there's a particular time in your life where you've said to your children, you do not know how good you have it. You do not know how blessed you are. I'm sure any of us uh, who are parents have said it at one time or another. And this, of course, happens when your children are ungrateful or unaware of the, uh, or unaware of the blessings that they have or act in ways that contradict the privileges that they have or how good their life is relative to a different alternative. I'm sure we've said that a few times ourselves. Now, this phrase, you do, not, you do not know how good you have it, can also be said to some of us as Christians. Not so much because we are irresponsible teenagers or ungrateful adolescents, but rather because as Christians, we tend to forget all the wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. And therefore, we tend to live below the level of our privileges, the privileges that we have in Christ. Not only that, we often have a shallow understanding of the gospel implications and what they mean for us. 
The result, of course, is that as Christians, some of us, we are less confident in our beliefs, especially against the backdrop of a world that is hostile to Christianity, a world that does not want to hear anything of what we have to say about Christ. Sometimes, or secondly, some of us, we are less zealous in our practices. We are not as devotional as we ought to be. Uh, we are not as, as fervent or zealous as we ought to be. And more than anything, sometimes we are not confident in the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And that happens often because we are unaware of the wonderful blessings that have been uh, won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. It ought not to be that way. Uh, because as Christians, we are the most loved, the most protected, the most cherished, the most blessed, the most favored people in the world. And therefore, we ought to be the most joyous people. And we ought to live in a way that shows the, the greatness of the blessing that we have in Christ. We have great privileges in the world, and often we need to be reminded so that we can live like it. We can live like we are people with the greatest privileges in the world. And this is what uh, Paul intends to do in his letter to the, uh, to the Romans. He intends to remind us, particularly in these verses that I read for you, from verses 31 to 31, he reminds us uh, that as Christians, uh, we have wonderful blessings uh, in God and with God. Uh, he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a wonderful statement. If God is for us. For us as Christians in Christ, we are the most blessed, the most loved, and the most treasured. And here he begins uh, this section of the scriptures. Having written all that he's written, he begins this section by asking this rhetorical question from verses 31 to uh, verses 39. It's a series of rhetorical questions uh, that are meant to emphasize a particular point. And that point is that you, if you are a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are the most loved and most secure person in the world. So verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the God that is for us, we need to remember, uh, is, is the creator of the heavens and the earth, isn't he? He's the creator of the universe. It is the one whom we, we say has all power, all knowledge, and who is everywhere. He's omnipresent. This is the one who's on our side. So what shall we say to these things? Now, these things that he's referring to is everything that Paul has said in this letter up to this point. So everything from Romans verses 1 up until Romans uh, verses uh, chapter 8 verses 30. Everything that he said from Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to uh, 8 uh, verses 30. All those things, that's what he's referring to when he says uh, all these things. And in light of all these things, everything he's mentioned, in light of everything that he said, he asked the question, what should we say? Because everything that he said shows us and proves to us that God is indeed on our side, that God is indeed for us. You might remember that Paul had written the letter to the church in Rome, even though he at this particular point had not been to the church itself. Uh, but he wrote that letter uh, in a sense, to introduce his gospel message and to pave, to pave the way uh, for future ministerial partnership. Uh, therefore, the, the letter itself is a delineation of the gospel. 
how in the gospel God through his grace has purposed to save sinners how through the blessing of salvation, uh, how the blessing of salvation comes to sinners through faith and not by works. That's, that's what he says throughout the letter. And how this salvation frees us from the curse of death in Adam, but gives us life in Christ. And how through this salvation, the law is no longer our enemy, but rather through the gospel, we have been adopted as sons of God and have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee and how we have the hope of glorification alongside with the renewal of the world. And that despite the sufferings of this present time, uh, we have the hope of glorification and that all things will work together for our good if we loved and are called by God. That's what Paul has been saying up until this point. That God has done a wonderful thing for us in Christ. He has saved us despite our sin and he saved us by his great, not by our effort or work. And in saving us, he has uh, uh, removed the scourge and the curse of sin and given us life. And we are no longer enemies, but we have peace with him. And now we can be called sons of God. And in light of all of these things, he says, what can we say? But rather that God is indeed for us. God is for us. God is on our side. That's what it means when he said that God is for us, that, that God is on our side. That God is working for our benefit. He's on our side. He's not against us anymore. And because that's, what it, that, that's how things were before Jesus died on the cross. God was our enemy. He was our, against us. He was working against us. He was, he was judging us for our sin. We were alienated for him. We were hostile to him. We were his enemies. But now in Christ... He has welcomed us as his family, as his children, as his beloved sons and daughters. And therefore now, instead of being against us, he is for us. And therefore Paul says, what can we say to these things? He, he marvels at what God has done for us in Christ because it's such an immense thing. It's such a wonderful thing. And by answer, he's asked another question. Imagine you, he's asking a question, but he answers uh, the question by asking another question. So he says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? And then he says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, now he's saying this in essence to, to re-emphasize the point that God is for us. That, that God is for us and he shows us he's for us in that he gave up his only son for us. He gave up his son for us. And because he gave his son for us, how will he not also give us every other thing there is to give? In other words, having understood what Paul has been saying from chapter one up to this point in the letter, we should marvel at what, what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, and, and this is Paul's conclusion, that God is for us, that God is on our side. And what, what shows that God is on our side is that he has worked this great salvation on our behalf through his son. Through his son. By giving his son for us. In other words, to show that God is for us, he's shown it by giving up his son. 
Now, now, when he says that he's given up his son, we need to understand what that means because, you know, he's just saying he's giving up his son. But, but we, we know from other passages of Scripture and what the Bible says that, that when he says he gave up his son, he gave his son up to what? To death, isn't it? He gave him up to death on the cross. And he gave him up to die in the place of sinners. That's what he means that he gave up his son for us. To die in our place as our substitute, to bear the guilt of not his own sin, but to bear the guilt of our sins. That's what he gave him up to. And we need to think really carefully because uh, in giving up his son, uh, God did not give up a, a murderer, did he? He did not give up a thief. Uh, you know, uh, all of us who are parents, uh, you, you know, if we love our children, we do not easily give them up, do we? We give them up because of terrible circumstances or situation or because they are criminals. Um, a few weeks ago, I was watching a program where uh, a mother had to give up her son because her son was planning to murder other people. So she gave him up to the police. Uh, so he, he was not an innocent party. Uh, he, was, he was a criminal, so he had to be given up. But, but in, in, in giving up his son, God was not giving up a criminal. He was not giving up a disobedient son. He was giving up a perfect son. Uh, he was giving up a son whom he loved. He was giving up a son who, who, who loved him and who obeyed him. Uh, in the Gospel of John, there are all these phrases where Jesus says, I, I do what my father says. That's a perfect son. All of us would love to have children that obey us in everything. That's the son whom he gave up. A son that no parent would, would, would easily give away. He gave him up for us. And remember, when he gives him up, he gives him up in exchange for who? For, for us. Uh, you know, it's one thing if, you, if you know, you're doing like some sort of bartering, uh, you always want to exchange something of equal value. Uh, you know, so if, if, if I'm giving up something, I want to receive something of equal value. But when, when, when God gave up his son, he was not getting anything of equal value because what was he getting? He was getting sinners. He was getting the, the, the wretched and the wicked, the unworthy and undeserving. So, so that, that is a marvelous thing to do. Who gives up a perfect thing for a worthless thing? No one. But God did. He gave up his precious son. And he gave him for you and I. Now, I don't have to know any details about your life, but I know if you're anything like me, uh, I know what my heart is like. I know where God picked me up from. Uh, it wasn't a nice place, was it? Uh, we, we were not pristine and clean and lovely and, and, and wonderful. Uh, some of us, God fetched us very far in the trenches of sin and, 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 and death and dirt. And he gave up a perfect son for us to prove that he is indeed for us. He gave up his own son. And that's why Sean read that wonderful passage that all of us know by heart ever since we were children, that, that for God so loved the world, and he loved the world in this way that he gave up his only begotten son. Now, now when it says that, the only begotten son, uh, it, it shows the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Uh, because the word there, if we translate it accurately, it says the one and only son. Meaning that, that there is no son like Jesus Christ. He is one of a kind. 
He's one of a kind. He's a, he's a rare entity. And that's the one whom God gave up. The son who is a rare entity, who, who, who is God of very God. A son who was full of the Holy Spirit, who was perfect. And God gave him up for us. For you and I, unworthy sinners, wretched sinners. How can God give up his most treasured possession for you? and not be for you? How can God give up the most valuable thing in all of creation and not be for you? So, so, so Paul says these things uh, so that we can understand uh, the value of what God has done for us. That, that it was not a light thing for Jesus Christ to die for you. It was not an easy thing. And because it was not a light thing, it was not an easy thing, uh, you need to be convinced of the fact that God is indeed for you. If he can do such a wonderful, miraculous thing in giving up his son, how can he not be for you? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then he adds another thing. He says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So not only does God give us his son, and and we need to realize when God gives us his son, there's nothing greater than that, is is there? There's there's nothing greater than Jesus. And, and, And therefore, in a sense, when God gives us his son, he gives us the very best we could ever have. He gives us the very best we could ever have. Even when we go to the new heavens and the new earth, nothing we will see in eternity can can be greater than Jesus Christ himself. So there's a sense in which when God gives us his son, he he gives us the, the best thing already. And because he's given us the best thing already, everything else, he's willing to give as well. Everything else. And, and if we think about everything else in light of what Paul has said in the letter already, in Romans 8, verses 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. If God says he can give us all things graciously, won't he give us help in time of suffering? If God says, if he has given us his son, he, he will graciously also give us all things. Does not that mean he'll, he will give us help when we need it or when we struggle or, or when we wrestle against sin that is always uh, before us trying to tangle us down? If God can give us his son, won't he give us all the resources necessary that we need in order to live life in godliness and health and, and, and holiness? Those are small things in comparison to his son. There are small things. Therefore, we, we, we did not feel as if God is unable to care for us in the ways that he says is able to care for us because already he's done the greatest thing, which is to give us his son. And therefore, everything else we need for life and godliness can be ours. God is able to give us all things. And of course, when he says that, he's not only talking about things related to our, our current existence, but also he's talking about the fact that if we are 
Christians, if we are born again, we are also, the Bible tells us, as he says earlier in chapter 8, that we are co-heirs with Christ. And therefore, we are inheritors of the world to come together with Christ. That's what he means when he says, when he give us all things. He's looking ahead to the eschaton where God will hand the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth to his son. And we will be inheritors of that blessing together with the Lord Jesus Christ as his co-heirs. And all of this is to show that God is for us, that God is on our side, that, 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 that God has, has worked out uh, something that, that ensures that all believers are, are highly privileged people. Now, I'm saying this in the context of, 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 of the world we live in, where, where we know that we encounter difficulties and trials and, and, and we, 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 we fail, we falter, we, we get weary, we get tired. But, but in the context of all these things, we are still a privileged people. Despite the difficulties that we encounter, despite the hostilities that we encounter, we are still a privileged people. There, there is no downside to being a Christian. There's only up, an upside. There's no downhill. It's only uphill. We are are going further and further up. To be a Christian is to be the most privileged person because God is on your side. And to show that he's on your side, he's worked a great salvation on your behalf. He's given you his son to die for your sins. You see, Jesus Christ, the sins he died for were not his own. They were yours and mine. They were yours and mine. The, uh, Jesus was treated like a criminal, but he was, the, he was not the criminal. You and I were the criminal, are the criminals. But God gave him up that we might no longer be criminals, but that we might be sons. That we might be purified and that we might be reconciled to the Father and children of God. And therefore Paul continues on. In light of everything he said, he continues on. Then then if that's the case, if if God has done this wonderful thing of giving uh, his son uh, for sinners, uh, he continues on and asks another question. He says then, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who, who, who can bring any charges against those whom God has chosen and elected? Because it is God who justifies, that's what he said. In other words, if God has done all these wonderful things to procure our salvation, who can then come and say to those of us who are Christians that, you know, what are you doing with this one? Why did you save this one? No one can do that. Why? Because God has has done all that is necessary to make us right with himself. Therefore, no one can bring a charge against us. No one can bring up our past sins. No one can bring up our past behaviors and say that those things disqualify us. No, why? Because God has done everything that is necessary to procure our salvation. Uh, That's why Paul says it is God who justifies us. We do not justify ourselves. We, We do not save ourselves. We do not make ourselves right. God is the one who makes us right through the giving of his son. And that's the point that Paul made in verse 30 where he says, uh, those whom whom he predestined, he also 
called, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, that, that's to show that, that from point A to point Z of salvation, it begins and ends with God. That God is the one that works salvation. He plans it, he predestines it, he works it, he achieves it, and therefore he's the one that justifies and therefore, no one can bring any charge against us in light of what he's done for us in Christ. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who makes right. Now, this is important for us to hear because, because sometimes uh, as Christians, we, we delude ourselves into thinking that our, our performance is what makes us right with God. Our, our obedience is what makes us right with God. Now, now when, we, when we think in those terms, we're putting the cart before the horse. Uh, because, because obedience is necessary and important. But obedience is not the ground of salvation. It's the grace of God in Christ that's the ground of salvation. Obedience is the fruit of that ground. So we, mustn't, we must be careful not to put the cart before the horse. And think that our, our performance our righteous works, our deeds, are what secures us the love of God. No, Christ is the one that secures the love of God for us. Everything else is an is, is outworking of that love of Christ that's working in us. Therefore, even the fruit that we bear, even the obedience that we bear, uh, even the good deeds that we do, all of those things are, are, are the result of God's work in our lives. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, that salvation is by grace that, and not by works, so that no man may boast. It is the work of God. God is the one who justifies. And then to re-emphasize this point, he says in verse 34, who is uh, to condemn? If God is the one who justifies, who, who, can, who can condemn us? If we believe in Jesus Christ, if we are Christians, no one can condemn us. If, it, if God is the one who, who justifies, no one can condemn us. And, and that's a very important point, isn't it? Because we know that if salvation depended on any one of us, uh, uh, if, you know, sometimes, sometimes our performance depends on whether or not we've had a good cup of coffee that morning. Imagine if salvation depended on you. Then someone would have the basis and the ground to condemn you because you did not have a good cup of coffee that morning and therefore you were grumpy. No. No one can condemn us because the ground of our salvation is not us, but it's Jesus and it's God himself who justifies. That's why he continues to say, Jesus is the one that died. Not you and I. We could not pay for our own debt. We could not secure our own salvation. Jesus is the one that died. And when he died, he paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future. Sins we know about and sins we do not know about. He paid for them. And he said on the cross, it is finished. Finish and clap. There's not more to be added. 
There's no more anyone else can do. So who can condemn? Uh, the work is complete. It is done. It is finished. There's no more, there's no more blood to be shed. And because there's no more blood to be shed, and because Jesus is the one who died, that no one can condemn us. No one can say to any of us, if we are in Jesus Christ, that we do not deserve to be saved, we do not deserve to be loved, we do not deserve to be cherished. Because Jesus has done everything necessary to prove that God is for us that God loves us, that God cares for us, that, that, that God has a special purpose for us in Christ. And then he says, more than that, not only is he the one who died, more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God. And of course, that's a, that's a, that's a symbolic language to, to show that, that the work has, has been finished. He's at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God to show that the work is done. And at the right hand of God, he says, who is indeed interceding for us. Now, those are the most comforting words in this passage. That when Jesus, not only did he secure your salvation... Not only did he win your salvation, not only did he ensure that your salvation is secure, but even right now while he's at the right hand of God, he's interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, um, brothers, I write these things so that you may not sin. But if you do indeed sin, remember you have an advocate with the Father. And what is the advocate doing? The advocate is interceding for you. He's praying for you. Reminding God that, that these, these Christians who, who are struggling, who are encountering difficulties, who are suffering in whatever way that they are suffering, these are the people I died for. And therefore, Father, forgive them, love them, and give them the help that they need. You know, when I was thinking about this passage, I realized that uh, the, 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 what, what the, the Paul says about Jesus here, he also says about the Spirit. Because earlier on in, in chapter 8, he says that uh, the Spirit is interceding for us. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. Uh, in the Gospel of John, um, John calls the, the Holy Spirit the helper, uh, which can also be translated our advocate. And then later in 1 John, he calls Jesus our advocate. So there is a sense in which the triune God is, is working on our behalf. Both the Holy Spirit and both Jesus are our advocates. They are our helpers. Both the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are interceding for us. Therefore, there is a sense in which as Christians, uh, we have a sense of a marvelous security, don't we? Because we have the triune God who's working in different ways for us. And therefore, we need to remember that what Paul is saying here is so that we can realize the great privilege that we have, that God is indeed for us. 
So who can condemn? No one can condemn because Jesus Christ has paid it all. There's nothing more anyone can do. And, and this is very important because uh, not only can outsiders condemn you, but also you cannot condemn yourself, can you? Which is sometimes what we as Christians do. We, we disqualify ourselves from the blessing of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We, we disqualify ourselves from, from the wonder and the glory and the beauty and the immensity of the gospel. We say, no, this can't be for me because I've done this and that. You know, you, you, even you cannot condemn yourself because you did not pay for, for your sins yourself. Someone else paid. Therefore, you cannot say, no, this is not for me. Therefore, you cannot say, no, no, I'm far too gone. Therefore, you cannot say, no, 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 this sin means that I cannot come to God. No, you, even you cannot condemn yourself. The world cannot condemn you. You yourself cannot condemn yourself. You cannot disqualify yourself from the privilege of being loved by God if you are in Christ. And therefore, that's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? That whatever sin you have, uh, or whatever issues you have, whatever mess you have, you can bring to the feet of Jesus because he's able to pay for it. You aren't. Whatever you feel is a barrier for you to come to Jesus Christ, that is taken away. There, there is no obstacle that, that prevents you from coming to Christ. And you cannot unhitch yourself. If you are a Christian, from the hand of God. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Gospel of John? That they're in the Father's hands and no one can pluck them out of his hand. And you yourself cannot pluck yourself out. So there is no excuse, is there? If this is true, there is no excuse. There, there is nothing that's pro prohibiting any of us to cling to our sin. There's nothing prohibiting any of us to, 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 to say that, no, no, this is not for me. Because the door is wide open because of what Jesus Christ has done for all of us. And therefore, we have a great incentive to put our faith and trust in Jesus because what Paul is saying here is that God has done it all. He has done it all. He has given up his son and his son has died for you. And therefore, there's nothing that can hold you back from giving your life freely to God. And putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Paul continues with his questions. And he asks more questions. He says here. What shall separate us from the life of Christ? In light of everything he said, in light of the fact that the price has been paid, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And he, and he asks more, more, more rhetorical question. He, he says, shall, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, 
or nakedness or danger or sword. And, and if you notice, all of those are circumstantial things, uh, are things in our environment. Uh, uh, you know, we, we could live in a time where persecution happens. Uh, you know, uh, Sean will tell you all about the persecution that's happening in most of the world. Distress, tribulation, famine, all of those are circumstantial things that all of us as Christians can face. And remember, he said already in, in 8 verses 18 that, that I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so there is indeed sufferings that all of us must go through. And all of us will face, and we do not know what sort of suffering we'll encounter. Today it's health, tomorrow it's a lost job, tomorrow it's a lost loved one. We encounter all these sort of things that are happening all around us. But, but in light of all those things, none of them can, can separate us from the love of Christ. Not famine, nor hunger, nor nakedness, nor danger or sword. And remember the people that Paul is writing to there, they faced immense persecution uh, in, in the Roman Empire. And he's reminding them that, that despite what you're encountering, what you're facing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Who, what can separate you? It is, it is, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says in verse 37, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we need to know that, don't we? We need to know that as Christians, we are people who are loved and are loved deeply. And God has proven his love for us by giving us his son. There's no greater proof for the love of God than the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's a sense in which we need to feel secure in this love. And we need to, we need to cherish this love. And we need to swim in this love and live within the confines of this love. And this love cannot be taken away from us. We are more than conquerors. We, 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 we can overcome our temporal difficulties and circumstances. Uh, even the circumstantial circumstances that we have no control over. You, you see, we have no control over persecution or famine, uh, and we tend to be people who like to have a control over things. But, but even the things that are beyond us, we cannot... They cannot stop God from loving us. And then he continues in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now remember the, the earlier list are, are things that are circumstantial things that are in, 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 our, in our present existence. Uh, and then he says all these things, neither life, neither height, nor depth, death or life, angels. And those things are tra transcendent things, aren't they? they? They are things beyond us. So in other words, he's saying that uh, there, there is nothing uh, in your current circumstances, in your temporal life, all things that are beyond you, that transcend you, that can be able to separate 
you from the love of Christ. In other words, he's covering all the bases. There is nothing that is left to chance. There is nothing that can squeeze in through the cracks or the crevice or the corner in your whole entirety or in the whole entirety of existence that can separate you from the love of God. And therefore, Christian, you are secure. You are secure. You are secure. There is nothing, nothing that can separate you from God's love. Even you yourself. Even you yourself. Uh, and often we, 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 we are performance-based people. We, we feel like uh, God loves us based on whether we've read the scriptures, whether we've attended church, whether we've prayed. Now, all those things are important and necessary. And we ought to do them well. But none of those things are the basis of God's love for you. Are you, you see, love is not a feeling, is it? Love is not a feeling. Uh, unfortunately, because we, we grow up in the Hollywood age, Disney, you know, we, we think that love is that fuzzy feeling, you know. Uh, but, 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 but that's not love. Because that is fickle, isn't it? And that, that, that is determined by, by the weather. You know, sometimes we feel loving when it's warm. We feel unloving when it's cold. Like I said, sometimes we, we feel loving depending on whether we had a good cup of coffee or not. That's not love. That's not love. And therefore, we cannot, we cannot in a sense, use our feelings or how we feel at the moment to gauge God's love for us. God does not love you because you feel good on that particular day and he does not love you any less because you feel bad on that particular day. He loves you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. He loves you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. Now that does not mean now we can just live anyhow. Uh, because there's a sense in which God, God reinforces the love as we live in obedience to him. And he, he withdraws the sense of comfort when we live in disobedience of him. Uh, so, so it's not a license to live in sin, is it? But also it's not a license to feel as if God's love is fickle and, and based on your, your, your temporary uh, circumstances or situation. God loves you. And you need to know that and remember that. And because he loves you, Paul wants you to know that there is nothing in this world and outside of this world, nothing that is uh, existential, that is transcendent, that can, say, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Turn with me to John 17. One of my favorite Passages ought to be all our favorite passages where Jesus Christ prays for the church. And he says these remarkable words. From verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who, have, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. How wonderful is that? That God loves us, and he loves us in the same way that he loves his one-of-a-kind son. That there is no, there's no degree of love with God. There is no, uh, you know, some parents, we might not say it, but there's that child that we have a special love for more than the others because the others are probably naughty. But with Jesus, with God, he loves all his children the same. And he loves you, weak you, feeble you, sinful you, failing you, doubtful you. He loves you in the same way that he loves his perfect son who obeys him always, the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that in the same way. And this love is a love that will secure your salvation, is a love that will strengthen you through times of suffering. It's a love that will sustain you through seasons of difficulty. It's a love that will give you everything necessary for life and godliness. And it's a love that no one can take from you. And you cannot take it from yourself. Satan cannot take it from you. Death cannot take it from you because it's eternal. It's a love that will be with us even as we enter into the new heavens and the new so why, why won't you come to God and, and bask in this love? If you are not a Christian this morning, why, why won't you come to a God who, who, who says he is for you and he loves you and nothing can take you out of his love? Why won't you come and be made a child of God? A treasured, a valued, a protected, a secure child of God. There's nothing that should hold you back, nothing, no barrier. Your sin should not hold you back. In fact, your sin is what qualifies you. And the love of God is such a love that even when we come with our sins, he does not leave us with our sins, does he? He does not leave us with our sins, but he washes us in the blood of Jesus Christ and he makes us new and he gives us new hearts and he calls us sons and daughters. Let us pray. Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are for us, that you showed us that you are for us and that you gave us your only son to die for us. And Father, we thank you that in him we have life, in him we are reconciled with you, and in him we have the forgiveness of our sins, and in him that we have this perfect love that cannot be taken away from us. Father, help us live in light of this love. Help us live in light of what you have done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.